0: We're in second Samuel chapter thirteen tonight sorted chapter <laughs> but we'll uh let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll uh we can get started Father, we thank you for your word tonight. thank you for uh, including even uh, things like this in your word it, it's not sterilized in any way and and Lord, we we thank you for the lessons we can learn from this text tonight. And and Lord, we pray that you would, as we look at the different characters in our study tonight, that you would uh, allow us to, uh, in the end, apply this uh, to our lives in a practical way. Uh, just give us wisdom as we, we look at your word. Uh, help us to set aside the business of our day and our week and, and just focus on you and your word for the next uh, few moments together. And and Lord, we pray for those who couldn't make it out tonight. Uh, Lord, you know the reason why, and we just pray that you would... Uh, uh, remind them of your grace and bless them. Pray for Lois as she recovers, and Ruby and others from their uh, illnesses. And, and Lord, we just uh, pray that you would uh, just be gracious to us here tonight in this place. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an a, a ongoing narrative here in in Second Samuel, and so tonight I'm just going to read the text, and then we'll look at the different characters uh, involved in our. Um, in chapter 13, this evening, out of Second Samuel. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Ammon, Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was uh, Jonadab, the son of uh, Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was very crafty, very crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard, morning after morning? Will you not tell me?" And Amnon said to him, "I love Tamar, my brother's, my brother Absalom's sister." And Jonadab said to him, "Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare.'" the food in my sight, that I might see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home uh, to Tamar, saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother's brother Amnon's house, and where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I go carry my shame? Uh, Where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So the servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long robe uh, that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal-Azar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be a bur- burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he, would not, uh, but he would not go, but gave his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon go, and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom uh, commanded his servants, uh, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did do Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each one mounted his mule and fled. And while they were on their way, news came to David, Absalom has struck down all the king's uh, sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth, and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that he had killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom this has been determined from the day he violated His sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. But Absalom fled, and the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it it has come about. Verse 36. And as soon as he finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and and went to uh, Talmai, the the son of uh, Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon. Since he was dead, kind of a crazy story. It's uh, um, something that you wouldn't expect to find necessarily on the pages of Scripture. Uh, some of you may remember uh, Hollywood's version of this. I, I entitled the thing tonight, "Fractured Family," and it seems like Hollywood has a, a niche for finding families or creating sitcoms where the family falls apart, or movies, or whatever, there's a river uh, flows through it, there's Dallas, remember Dallas, uh, you know, they all end up killing each other, just, you know, crazy things like that, and people are attracted to that uh, for some, for some weird reason, and maybe it makes them feel good about their own family, I don't know, um, but what I want to do tonight, rather than just, you know, we're not going to go through this verse by verse, obviously, but I want to kind of look at it as a, uh, a story, as a sketch, and then we want to look at some of the characters, And the one thing I want you to do is is to, we want to be intent on listening to what the characters are saying in the story. Or even what they're not saying. Because in the end, it will tell us a lot about their intentions, their motives, all that's going on here. So the first character I want to look at, you have it there in your outline, is Amnon. And uh, we're introduced to him basically there in in verse 1. It says, after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her all right uh, you wonder why amnon is is uh kind of uh mentioned here he he's the oldest he's the he's the oldest uh brother he's really the heir uh to the throne if david kicks off and you see here this guy's got a a weird passion as we're told there in verse one he loved his sister, his stepsister, technically. Uh, Absalom, David's son, says had a beautiful daughter whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon came to love her. And so we're told several things here. We're told that, first of all, she's his half-sister. She's the full sister of Absalom, uh, Amnon's younger stepbrother. She's beautiful uh, we already learned in the unfolding story of, of Samuel just because someone's beautiful, as Bathsheba was beautiful, remember, that doesn't give us the right <laughs> to treat them in a sordid way. Just because someone's beautiful is not a crime. And so uh, sometimes, you know, people tend to take advantage of, of that and, and kind of make it out like, well, she was enticing or whatever. But once again, there's nothing here said that she did anything wrong at all. Um, She was not asked um, for, you know, her beauty wasn't here just so someone could use her. That's not, you know, it wasn't for them to take for granted. Uh, She wasn't here for public usage. She wasn't a harlot. She's the sister of Absalom, and you need to remember that because that name is going to be very important in the chapters that follow this one. Uh, The significant thing we're told in verse 1 is that Amnon, David's sister, uh, loved her and you, you got to understand what 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 kind of love is this you know i mean we, today in our society we hear the word love and we think of all kinds of things um, i want to know what that love meant what does it mean that he loved tamar well if you look at verse 2 it tells us so amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister tamar for she was a virgin it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. So he was so infatuated with his stepsister that he literally made himself ill because of this. He says he was tormented as a result of it. Um, she was a virgin. She was not married. Uh, she's she was, the language indicates, of marriageable age. So uh, she's a virgin. It seemed impossible to anyone, that he could do anything to her at all, given the circumstances. And so when we put this all together, it says he loved her and he wanted to do something to her. That's not really love. That's not the kind of love (laughs) that we're told to have toward one another. That's kind of a, a sick version of love, as a matter of fact. And you kind of have the insights here of of love, some of the politics of love. I mean, really, what what Amnon is saying, I love me, I want you. (laughs) That's what he's saying. And that happens all the time in relationships. Uh, Amnon loved Tamar, but that kind of love was the kind of love, basically, it didn't come from his heart, it came from his glands. Uh, His frustration lies in the fact that he cannot easily get his hands on his stepsister to do what he really wants to do to her. It's kind of a sad story. Uh, He desires her passionately, but she's not available to him for a variety of reasons. She's of marriageable age. She hasn't been touched by anyone, uh, but she's a target of his affection, and he can't do anything about it. Uh, Maybe she was even being a princess, being the king's um, daughter. Maybe she had a detail of, of protected guards around her constantly. We don't know. Uh, to preserve her honor as a royal princess. But Amnon's passions really collide (laughs) big time with what's socially permitted and what's practically possible. And that just sends him off the rails. It causes great distress. It causes great frustration. He, He is passionately wanting his sister in a physical way, which is sick on the surface, But still, that's what it is. And his passions are fueled merely by his hormones. There's there's no logical sense to this. He's going to justify what he wants on the basis of those passions, those hormones. So we have Amnon. The second individual we run into here is Jonadab. And it it, it mentions here that uh, down in in verse 3, but Amnon had a friend. It's really his cousin. Um, y- you have to understand the social restraints of uh, on Amnon kept him from having any relationship with Tamar. That was kind of the you know that was that was kind of the, the borderline there. I don't think he would have done anything if Jonadab wouldn't have come along and said, Hey, <laughs> why don't you try this? I don't think he had the wits about him to figure this out on his own. And so we have the introduction of Jonadab, his, uh, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, so it's the uncle. Uh, you know, this story probably wouldn't even be in the Bible if it wasn't for Jonadab's craftiness, if it wasn't for Jonadab's, you know, uh, sick planning here. And so it's his cousin Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shemaiah, that comes up with this plan this scheme there's a theologian from reform theological seminary Ralph Davis and he says this he states that Jonadab is probably the most dangerous man in the whole story because he's a man with political savvy he has natural wisdom but he doesn't have any principles (laughs) zero principles See, we have people like that in our society today They have a lot of savvy, they have a lot of wisdom, but they don't have any ethics, they don't have any character, they don't have any principle. And see, it's it's Jonadab who puts together this plan to make this off-color liaison happen. And not only that, but he does it in such a way as even to implicate the king, which on its surface is just a whole other no-no. He uses the king as a means to make this thing happen. Um. And so we're told in the text there, as we introduced it to Jonadab, his name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. That means he was very shrewd. He was very sweet, streetwise, you might say. Um, the, the Hebrew word for this, this kind of, of craftiness or shrewdness, or you could even say wisdom, is, uh, in the proper context, it really refers to godly wisdom. In the proper context, it really refers to godly insight. That's what it can refer to, but not in this context. See, it can also be used for counterfeit wisdom. It can also be used for ungodly insight, such as the serpent. Remember, Satan in the Garden of Eden, he was what? More crafty. Same, 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 same word, same understanding than all the other beasts of the field that God had created. What's that mean? His craftiness, his wisdom is distorted. It's tainted. His insights are twisted. They're not, they're not on the level, at least with Scripture and with God's moral law. So this was a craftiness that's not from God. It's a craftiness that's from the devil, literally. And see, it was Jonadab's shrewdness here, this craftiness, that really can be seen as a way of... of Cleverly manipulating, maneuvering David in the middle of all this—that's really what he does. So what's he do? He suggests to Amnon in the story there. You know what? Why don't you just fake an illness? It says he's already sick. Over this, he can't have his, his his stepsister. He said, fake an illness to where like he can't get out of bed. Illness, and um, and then you know, kind of King to come visit you. And if he, as he asks his father. Hey, can t- t- my sister Tamar come and maybe bake some of those cakes? Man, she's such a good cook. And without any s- suspicions ar- 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 arising at all, he gets his way. It actually works. That's how crafty Jonadab was when he came up with this plan. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, um, Amnon saying, is this really going to work? <laughs> you know, but well, I'm going to try it. Well, sure enough, the plan works and um you know you you can you can kind of john calvin says this about this text he says jonadab becomes a pimp for his male cousin that's what he said he plots the disgrace of his female cousin and he does so while being disloyal to and using his uncle the king this is a bad guy bad to the bone they say you know that's what this jonadab was um And then Calvin says this, if God has blessed you with wisdom or savvy or insight, please pray that God would also give you integrity and sincerity so that you do not succumb to craftiness like the craftiness of Jonadab. That's so important. You know, wisdom, insight, that's a good thing. But so many times people have it and they use it, what? For the wrong purpose. So you got this crafty individual here, Jonadab, and and he's the one that concocts this plan. Well, next I want to look at Tamar, the stepsister. I want you to listen to this woman here in this text and, and what she says, this girl who's really, I mean, her, her situation is like this. She's trapped, she's ignored, she's raped, she's rejected, and then she's just summarily dismissed, and her life is in ruins. That's how she's treated. And I want you to to hear her because I want you to do what the rapist we're talking about here twice does not do. He does not listen to her. He doesn't listen to her. I want you to think about the things that Tamar say in this story. Uh, We're told that she was a virgin. The word also indicates that she was a virgin of marriageable age, as I also said. Um, The clothes that she wore indicates that they were the regular kind of clothes. They weren't seductive clothes, nothing that indicated that this is who she was. She was a marriageable age and she was a virgin and a daughter of the king. And So I want us to listen to her because to be honest with you, nobody else in this story, none of the other characters listen to her. Not one. And so we need to take her seriously. And I think whenever anyone is in a situation like this, we need to take them seriously. You can't just discount it. Um, so in the context here, Jonadab's scheme, it works right to the T, works perfectly. David's concerned when he hears the news about Amnon, Amnon's illness and says, well, i got to go see my son. He's sick. And Amnon asked, if, hey, can you bring Tamar by and send her by, and maybe she can make some of those cakes? And David agrees to it. He's thinking, sure, why not? That makes sense. She'd probably love to do that for her brother. And so here's Tamar. She gets the call. She comes obediently. She's in the kitchen, meeting, eating the dough, and pretty soon the bread's in the oven. You can smell the bread, you know, throughout the house, cooking. And you can just sense probably Amnon, going, hey, this is working. This is going to work. And it's then that Amnon makes his move. He appeals to her. Because why? He's not feeling well. And she takes pity on him. And please, sister, please feed me. And, you know, it should have been a sign, you know, okay, everybody else needs to get out of here. I mean, th- that in and of itself speaks volumes, right? But, I mean, they're siblings. It's probably an innocent, you know, uh, time together. It, it, she's not thinking anything. It's not even on her radar at this point. No, but I'm just saying that's that it's so important that, you know, we understand that. And as he leans, is, is, is she leans over to maybe put one of these cakes in his mouth... Because he wouldn't eat him otherwise, what's he do? He grabs her, physically grabs her, and we see what uh, Amnon or what Tamar says as she pleads for her honor as a woman, as a daughter of a king. She starts with a principle, and then she 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 moves to appeals of her own and his self interest, and then later she ends it with a plea. In verse, verse 11 there, look at what it says. It says, but when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. Very bold, verse 12. And she answered him, no, my brother. She, that's, that's basic, it's a basic principle. She's, she's stating this as a principle. This is not what brothers and sisters do. She reminds him of his uh, heritage being Israelite. You know, we're made in the image of God. Women are not to be used and abused like this. This is not right. You can't just do this. Only godless people do this. This is what's going through her mind. My brother, what are you thinking? Remember, you're my brother. And so she appeals to him on the basis of principle. The people of God don't act like this. But then she continues and she appeals to his, his self-interest. She kind of said, you know, if you, if, you really, if you really love me the way you say you do, don't do this. This is not love. I mean, this is going to affect me the rest of my life if you go through with this. This is going to be a blight on my, uh, my my life as a woman. Get, life's over, basically. And that's why she she says... Do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Don't do, act like these outrageous fools. The language there, technically, here's what it means. If you do this, Amnon, you're going to be regarded as a wicked pervert in all of Israel. This is not something that our people do. That's really what it indicates but she, it doesn't seem to work, you know. She appeals to principle, I'm your brother. She, she appeals to his self-interest, her self-interest. Look, if you really love me, this is going to affect me negatively, not positively. And it's going to affect you negatively, not positively. Why, why would you do this? But she even gets more desperate as he continues to grab and, and hold her. And she even, in my mind, resorts to bargaining with him. She says, as for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you you'd be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. In other words, okay, that, that number one, it didn't work. The, the principle of being the brother. Secondly, I appealed to his self-interest, my self-interest. That didn't work. So now maybe I can barter my way out of this. This is a desperate woman in a desperate situation. Desperate to preserve her honor. And it says... Therefore, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, I think he probably would. <laughs> you know, probably, more than likely. But, you know, you never know. I mean, she's, she's up against the wall. She doesn't know what to do. She's like, let's let's talk to dad. Let's talk to the king. You know, I mean, if he wants me to do this, then, then it, you know, that's it. That's, it's game over. Speak to the king, for he will not withhold me. He, she's trying to get out of this situation desperately. The king might find a way. Now, You know, in her mind, she's probably thinking, well, maybe the king helped me out, or he knows about this situation. (laughs) He knows about having passions. He knows about this whole situation, because he's been through it. She's trying to get through to him. She's trying to get breakthrough his hormones to his heart. She's trying to reason with her stepbrother. She's begging, please, please hear me. Verse 14. You look at the callousness, but he would not listen to her. He would not listen to her. And being stronger than her, he violated her, or raped her. And it says, lay with her. It's not, it's not even, I mean, I, I think it's in there just to kind of tone it down a little bit. What it, what it really means, technically, what it says is he laid her. Just laid her out. That's literally what he did. It's very graphic in its detail here. See, rape is always a power play. It's always a power play. That's has nothing to do with love. It's a power play on an unsuspecting, innocent individual usually. And even although David did not technically rape Bathsheba in the technical sense, really he did... <laughs> I mean, he sent for her, he's the king, he used his power, he used his influence to take advantage of her. Now his son does the same thing. She's violated, he's satisfied, and all that's left are the consequences. Sad, it's so sad. So I want you to hear this girl, this godly girl, speak out. I mean, Amnon's lust here his passion for his stepsister, it turns into loathing. It turns into hatred. He literally uses her and dismisses her. It says there, but he would not listen to her and being stronger than her, he violated her and he, he laid her. And then in verse 15, and Amnon hated her with a very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. That's what he said. I mean, talk about being, you know, just rude, obnoxious. Just using somebody like this. He used her, he dismisses her, get up and get out. What's very interesting to me is this, this gal, Tamar, she's one tough cookie. She really is. Because she's just been through a very 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 traumatic experience. And she says in verse 16, but she said to him, "No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me." I mean, she just got manhandled by this this guy, her stepbrother, and yet she still has a sense of significance. That's kind of odd. That's usually not the case with most women. They feel ashamed. They feel, you know, beaten down. They feel, I mean, you go through something like that, I can't even imagine what's going on in your heart and in your mind. But here, even here, she speaks up. She's like, hey, wait a minute, not so fast, my brother. But what? He's not listening to her. He would not listen to her. And he called the young man who served him and said, put this woman really the language says this thing out of my sight, out of my presence, bolt the door after her. He doesn't even refer to her as a being anymore. That's how much hatred he has in his heart for this individual. He begins by treating her as some object that he's passionately in love with and now he treats her like a piece of trash and literally just disposes of her, thinking somehow, you know, she won't say anything. This is just, she's just going to, this would go away. I mean, she's got to protect her honor. I gotta protect mine. She won't she won't say anything about this. Verse 18. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And look at what Tamar does. Tamar puts ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went what this tells me is she's not going away without a fight she's not going to let this guy just get away with this she's a public person she's a princess she's the daughter of the king and amnon i'm sure was thinking oh she'll just you know she's going to be so ashamed after this she'll just slink away home and not say a word to anybody but not tamar I mean, she, she let her grief be known to everybody. If you've ever gone through an experience like this, or you've ever dealt with people that have gone through an experience like this, you know the shame that's involved in something, even though they had, it's not their fault at all. But for someone to speak up when something like this happens to them, it's, it's usually not the case. Usually they'll, they'll keep it within them. They won't say anything. Because there's, there's all the shame, even though they're totally innocent in the matter. Someone else raped someone, you know, it's, 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 it's not something that a lot of people will go to the police and tell them. Now, you know, now today we live in the, the, the Me Too movement, all that, you know, and, and some people kind of say, well, that's a bunch. Really, it's probably not. I mean, I think anybody that goes through a traumatic sexual experience when they're abused or raped or whatever should have the right to bring that to people's attention. And it takes a strong person to do that. And that's the kind of woman that Tamar was. It speaks very highly of her integrity, very highly of who she was. So that's Tamar, the woman no one listened to. And then we look at Absalom. Absalom. Um, He enters here the picture in verse 20. And he's almost... Is almost dismissive (laughs) of this whole situation. Um, So he says there in verse 20, And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? In other words, he probably figured this out. Now hold your peace, my sister. In other words, we're not going to say anything about this. <laughs> he is your brother. Do not take this to heart. <laughs> really? <laughs> and this is her real brother. This isn't even a half-brother here. This is her, her her real brother. Basically, he said, you know what, don't, don't pay attention don't worry about the consequences of this this rape he he minimized really the significance of this situation and we're going to find out why real quick really you know when he when he says there um, hold your peace it, it really means just just keep quiet And so it, 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 it says, but uh, Absalom, so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. So you can hear Absalom saying, look, don't, you know, just come live with me. I know it's going to be tough out there. Just, just come, you can stay with me. So he's showing some compassion, but he's got something else in mind here. And then it says, down a little further, we're going to skip over a couple verses here. We'll get back to David in a second. But it it says here about uh, Absalom, verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. In other words, he didn't show his cards. He didn't, even though this guy raped his sister, he had a poker face because he had a plan. So he said, you know what? I'm I'm not not saying anything good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. Well, that's good. I mean he does show a little emotion here. we see a little insight into what's going on in this guy's heart, but it's not all that we think it is um, so then it says in verse twenty three um, you know there's a lot of i guess one one point I want to bring out here is there's a lot of ambiguity and of response, but as the story unfolds here, we're going to see uh, that, yeah, he is mad about Amnon raping his sister. But what he does is he uses it for his own really political gain. He uses this situation, this tragedy in his own family, his own sister, he uses it for his gain. He seizes upon the, the opportunity. He discounts all the trauma, the psychological issues, everything that's going on in Tamar's life. He doesn't care about that. Hey, yeah, I'm really ticked off this guy raped you, but, you know, don't say anything. So after two full years, 23, Absalom had sheep shears at the uh, Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's men. So he has this big party two years later. Yeah, so he's like, hey, okay, we're going we're gonna to have a little get-together. And Absalom came to the king, it says, and he said, hey, behold, your servant has sheep shears. Let, let the king, let everybody come to my house. We're going to have a big party. I want to honor everybody. But the king kind of resisted. He said, no, we don't want to be a burden to you. You know, that's a lot. It probably, you know, I don't know what kind of income you have, but, you know, let's be a good steward here. You don't need to do that. But he pressed him and he wouldn't go. The king said, I don't have time for these, these kind of things. But, you know, I guess some of the guys can go. But Absalom finally pushed him and said, you know, I, I, let my brother Amnon go. Now, remember, David knows what went on here. Because he was angry before, so he, he understands. And the king said, "Well, why should he go with you?" He's inquiring, but Absalom pressed him more, and finally David gave in, thinking, "Well, maybe they reconciled. Who knows? You know, maybe this is good. You know, family get together, great." And then Absalom commanded his servants when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, let's get him drunk first, and when. I tell you to kill him, you kill him. No questions asked. Don't worry about it. I'm your authority. If there's anything, any blowback, it'll come on me. Don't worry about it. It's all covered. Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose. So here they're having this giant party. Amnon is pretty well loaded up with liquor, wine, wine. And Absalom gives the cue to his servants. They go over and they kill Amnon. They didn't do it secretly. They kill him, obviously, right there because it says, then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. I don't know if you ever read, rode on a mule, but mules don't go real fast. So, I, you know, they were they were trying to get away as quick as they could. All they it was mules. So they're, they're trying to get out of there. But it, it seems like Absalom really used this rape of his own sister for a political advantage and an excuse to get rid of the one person, the one person who's in his way to the throne. That's really what it is. Amnon, his older brother. How can I get rid of this guy? He calculated this. This is kind of crazy when you think about it. He actually does overthrow King David, his father, in the days to come. We're going to see that eventually. But here you see him using the this this horrible experience that his sister just went through for his own grandisement, for his own promotion, for his own scheming. I mean, that's, that's kind of hard-hearted. Remember, we're talking about a fractured family here. Well, let's look at David, and then we'll apply some things. David... In, in verse 21, this is what we're told about David. When King David heard all these things, he was very angry. <laughs> That's it. That's it. His daughter gets raped by his other son. Well, I'm kind of ticked off about this. He says nothing, nothing more. I mean, this is David, the forerunner of Christ, the messianic figure in the Old Testament, the writer of the Psalms that we love, the man after God's own heart. What in the world is going on here? He says absolutely nothing. I mean, I don't know. I, I can't even imagine this going on in a family, but if it did, I mean, I, I, I'd be afraid of what I would do. I mean, it's, it's very, very traumatic, But he does nothing. And I'll tell you why he does nothing. I really believe he's paralyzed by his own personal guilt. He is literally paralyzed by his own personal guilt. Guilt from what? Well, what did he do with Bathsheba? What did he do with her husband? He's guilty. And this sense of personal guilt precludes him from doing anything when it comes to the, the moral judgment as a king would make that are part of the responsibility of his office. He is totally paralyzed by his personal guilt. He's guilty, and he knows it. And that's what he says in the Psalms, right? His sin is ever before him. Yeah. I mean, that's just ringing around. See, sometimes we think we can sin, we just confess it, and then we just move on. That, that's not reality. Sin has consequences. And depending on the nature of the sin, it could have lifelong consequences. It's not as easy as just dropping your knees. Oh, sorry, Lord, did that, you know, and then move on. Sometimes those consequences haunt you for the rest of your life. And so we have to be aware that sin is something God takes very seriously. We should take it very seriously. But here, David was paralyzed by his own personal guilt. You know, one thing that's important, I think those of us who teach, those of us who are in any kind of ministry or whatever. I mean, we're all guilty, right? To some degree. We've all fallen in some way, somewhere along the line or whatever. Hopefully it's not some ongoing thing, but I mean, and we'll probably fall again on various occasions. We're not perfect people. We're going to talk about a little bit about that on Sunday because in the, in the church at Corinth, they tended to lift up their leaders. Paul, Apollos. And Paul said, no. We're just like you. You know, we're fallen men. We're, we're, we're just trying to be used by God. Um, and the principle is this. You know, I, I really believe that David should, this, should have applied this principle, that a sense of personal guilt should not preclude you from fulfilling the responsibilities of the office you hold. If, if I had to be perfect every Sunday before I preached you'd never hear another word out of my mouth. Because it's never going to happen, this side of glory. And anybody that's ever stood in a pulpit and opened up the word of God and taught a congregation in any sense at all, you realize the, the humble state in which you are in. You realize that, wow, this, this message that you put together has spoken to your heart first, It's convicted you first. It's, it's laid you out before God first then you have the freedom to bring it before others. Not because you've mastered it. (laughs) Not because you're some expert on this or that or whatever you're talking about or whatever the text is talking about. See, preachers, true preachers, preach truth even when it convicts them. When it's uncomfortable. Why do you think I teach through the Bible? Because if I didn't teach the way I teach through the Bible... There'd be big holes in what I would teach. Because there are texts I don't even want to go near. Because I haven't dealt with it in my own life yet. And I'm I'm thinking, I don't want to talk about this. How can I stand up from the congregation? And you got that sense of personal guilt. And then most of us have a wife that always reminds us of our fallings. You know, you're the pastor, you're an elder, you're a teacher. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm imperfect. okay. Um, so, it's very important that we understand that. But here, David, all we hear was, wow, he was angry. That was it. That was it, because he was paralyzed by his own personal guilt. And that's basically the consequences of his own sinfulness. Well, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Um, first of all, some of you have five, six, and seven. I forgot to renumber it. But anyway, the first thing is God's word is true. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, if you go back to the last time we got together, 2 Samuel twelve ten. here's what it says, now therefore, when Nathan was giving this prophecy, giving the word of God uh, to David, he said, now therefore, the sword, because of your sin, shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Nathan's prophecy is beginning to be fulfilled right here. We see it right here in this text. And that tells us that God's word is true. And starting right here, as one son of David kills another one, strife begins to rifle through the family. Why? Because God's word is true. God's word is always true. Even though sometimes we may not comprehend it, we may not logically understand it, we have to take it at face value. We have to believe that it's inerrant, that it's inspired. That it's infallible. That it's the word of God. That's why it's so so cherished by us. That's why we study it. That's why we memorize it. That's why we read it. We can't get enough of it. Because it's true. God is not the author of sin. You know, this isn't a situation where God made this happen. When Nathan said, the sword will never depart from your house, that's not God saying, now I'm going to go make uh, Amnon, rape the sister, and then they'll kill each God is not the author of sin. As a matter of fact, the Westminster Confession puts it this way. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his, his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. It speaks of the sovereignty of God yet so, as whereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of his creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What, he's, what, what they're saying there is that, you know what? God, God's will is fulfilled in all these things. I mean, that's why this is in the text. It's there, this was allowed to happen, For our instruction. As tragic as it seems. As horrible of a story as it is. Could God have prevented it? Yes. Did he know? Why? Because there's something there for us. There's something there for all the other people. God allows it for our instruction. And you know what? Depending on your background. Depending on what you've been through as an individual. Maybe even he allowed it for your own comfort. So that you can look at the life of Tamar and say, wow. Look at what she went through how does she deal with that? How was God gracious to her through that? Because he wants to be gracious to any of us who go through anything like that. So God's word is true It's first. Secondly, really this story mirrors our society, does it not? I mean, this stuff happens all the time. I'm sure Danny could tell you story after story after story working in law enforcement. You hear these horrible stories of these families that are just sick, rifled with sickness and abuse and all this stuff going on. I mean, some families today are as dysfunctional as David's family was back then 10 times over. So it really mirrors our society. And, and it really speaks to the what? It speaks to the fallen nature of who we are. Uh, some people, you know, Think, think today is such a horrible, socially and morally, we live in this horrible place in San Francisco and it's so bad here, whatever. I mean, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't think this holds a light to what was going on in the Old Testament. So there's been, I think, times in history where it's been a lot worse. <laughs> uh, that's not to excuse it. I'm just saying this is, this is very real, real life. And then thirdly, God sees, God hears, and he will have justice in the end. That's really what this this story depicts. Um, You see Tamar's pleas here. I mean, I'm sure she's crying out to God in her own heart, but she's crying out more directly here to Amnon for him not to do these things. We hear her cries in the story, in the chapter here. And you know what? 3,000 years later, we're reading her account. We're reading what happened to this poor woman. Repealing to principle. Why? Because God heard her cries. That's why that's in the book. God could have left this whole story out. We never would have even heard about it. It's kind of a sordid thing, really. I mean, if I was God and I had a people that I called my own people and something like this, I would probably try to sweep it under the rug. You know, it's like family. You know, you don't like to air your dirty laundry in front of everybody. But God's not that way. He's like, no, people are going to learn from this. People, this is, this is going to either be conviction, maybe comfort, maybe instruction for somebody. And besides, God sees all this anyway. God sees, he hears, and he'll have justice in the end. Even though in this chapter, it doesn't seem like there's any justice tomorrow, does it? No, none at all. None at all. I mean... The only hope we know to be true is that God sees everything. All the injustice that has ever been done in this world has been recorded by God. He sees it all. It doesn't matter if you're talking about mass slaughter of races, whatever it might be. He sees it all. There's no cold cases. There's no unsolved cases in heaven. There's nobody in heaven going, wow. Boy, that guy got away with that. Nope. God has complete justice in the end. Every case has been registered and recorded. Because he sees it all. And so the story of Tamar here has really been included in this inspired text, I think, so that we can glean from it, so we can learn from it, so we can grow from it. There's, this res- there's no resolution here for this godly girl in the text... But now I believe she's probably in the presence of the Lord himself. And I think the Lord himself has probably wiped away every tear from her face from such a tragic life as hers. The Lord himself has probably given her an ecstatic joy that eclipses all memory of any injustice she's ever experienced. And the Lord himself will judge on that final day. Justice will be done. We have to believe that. We have to understand that. And then the last thing here, just quickly, is David is not the one. David is not the one. I mean, David here has been immobilized by his own guilt. I mean, his daughter gets raped by a brother and he just he's angry. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you know what? We all have guilt. We all have guilt. See, the problem with David is he needs someone without any guilt. And so do we. We need someone to stand in our stead who has no guilt. See, the king was supposed to be that guy, but he's filled with guilt, so he's paralyzed. We need someone who does only the will of God. Only one can do that. Only one person can say, you know what? The devil has nothing on me. Only one person. David's extended son, Jesus Christ. That's the only person. The perfect God-man. See, what this, this lesson really teaches us about David, it teaches us that David needed Jesus too. He was a fallen man just like everybody else. And there's no resolution here in this story because I believe the resolution comes when the Redeemer comes and when he makes all things new. See, that, that should give you hope. If you've ever faced injustice, if you've ever faced a situation like this and you realize, well, how did they get away with it? I mean, that can just fill you with rage the rest of your life and wreck your life. But you know what? When you understand that, you know what? God saw exactly what happened, and he's going to hold everyone account on that day. And there will be justice. And that's really what this is teaching us, is, is that David, even though he's a man after God's own heart, he wrote most of the Psalms, and we see so much good in David, There's still bad there. There's still bad. And David needed Jesus too, and the good the gospel is this: is that he's not just there for David. Jesus is not just there for David, but he's there for you. He's there for me. That's that's what salvation is all about. That's why when we come to that 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 fork in the road, and we realize we have to make a decision: what are we going to do? Are we going to serve Christ? Are we going to continue to go our own way? I mean. God loves us so much, that's why He sent Christ. That's why He died on a cross. That's why He rose the third day. That's why He was able to pay for our sin payment. And that's why He invites us to put our faith, our trust in Him, not in a church, not in a a prayer, not in service, nothing like that, in Him, in a person, an individual who loves us more than anybody could ever love us because He created us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows the good, but he also knows the bad. And the Bible said he still loves us. He still went to the cross for us. I mean, amazing, amazing grace that God has extended to us. And so, you know, you see at the end of the story here, Absalom flees and, um, you know, David kind of yearns for his, his son there in the end. But we're going to see as the chapters go on it, it doesn't turn out too well. It's, it, it's, you know, like I said, God's word is true. And that's exactly what's being fulfilled in uh, David's life and his family. You know, because sin has consequences and sometimes those consequences are ugly. Uh, let me close the word of prayer and then we can take any questions or comments. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this illustration, this story of uh, Amnon and Absalom and David and, and Tamar and and John Adab, Lord, we, we thank you for these characters and what we can learn from their lives. Lord, help us to live lives that are um, striving for righteousness. Help us not to go the way of the world. Help us not to follow our own passions, our own desires. Lord, you're very clear in your word that if we're going to follow you, we need to die to ourselves, pick, take up the cross, and follow you. And Lord, that's a daily battle for every one of us. But Lord, the, the good news is is you've given us victory through your son, through the spirit, through your word, through the church. We have support. We have people that can help us, to assist us, to reach out, to love us, to support us in our spiritual journey, our spiritual walk with you each and every day. And Lord, I just thank you for these dear folks that are willing to come out and hear the word taught, knowing that it's for their own edification. It's to build them up spiritually. Lord, I pray that they would leave here more blessed than when they came in. And so, Father, I pray that you would just uh, make that a reality, reality in all of our lives. And, Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.